This is Recruiting Daily's Recruiting Live podcast, where we look at the strategies behind the world's best talent acquisition teams. We talk recruiting, sourcing, and talent acquisition. Each week, we take one overcomplicated topic and break it down so that your three-year-old can understand it. Make sense? Are you ready to take your game to the next level? You're at the right spot. You're now entering the mind of a hustler. Here's your host, William Tincup. Ladies and gentlemen, it's William Tincup, and you are listening to the Recruiting Daily Podcast. Today, we have Kevin Owen from Qualtrics, specifically the EX science part of Qualtrics. And our topic is the end of people analytics as we know it. This is going to be fun, y'all. Can't wait. Uh, Kevin, would you do us a favor and uh, introduce both yourself and the work that you do at Qualtrics uh, EX Science? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So My role is as an employee experience scientist at Qualtrics. Uh, which beyond being a very interesting job title uh, is essentially a a mix between an organizational psychologist and a consultant. So my role is to help organizations find, uh, identify, and eliminate gaps in the employee experience. And the part that really excites me about that is connecting uh, the impact of those gaps and the impact of that improvement back to customer and business outcomes, and most importantly, uh, helping organizations act on those findings in a way that overall uh, improves the employee experience, but ultimately improves the success of the organization. So as we find those gaps, how, I mean, how often do we audit and look for those gaps or how often do they come up? And then as you triage those uh, I love the way that you you know bring them back to the business uh, and what's important to the business, but putting action around. So it's one thing to then find the gap, say, oh, we have a terrible onboarding process with remote employees. Okay, there's a gap, but then fixing the gap. Uh, so there's two two parts to that question. One is is how often are we are we looking for those gaps, and then the second part is well, once we find them, what do we do? I love that question. And I think it goes back to why people analytics in many ways could, could use a reorientation and um, a, a different way of, of approaching this. Uh, our colleagues in customer experience don't ask that question because for them, it's always a closed loop process wherever possible. If somebody's having problems with your ordering on a website or Uh, getting something accomplished, there's usually a a closed loop process on the customer side that enables that person to get what they need done, done. And it's not a matter of how often do we review it because the feedback and the action associated with that feedback is integrated into the feedback itself and happens as part of a workflow. So if someone's having trouble onboarding, understanding the impact of that onboarding trouble on things like belongingness and intent to stay and engagement and customer outcomes are all very important. And we want to continue to make those connections, but equally, if not more important is being able to take action on it in a proactive way so that that problem is either nipped in the bud or it doesn't become a problem to begin with. So thinking about how can you how can you move your decision-making process upstream so that you're no longer reacting 
in the moment or trying to make a, a business case down the road, but how do you use analytics and a proactive motion so that you're looking at people as they onboard and asking yourself, how's William doing <laughs> transitioning into this new role? What can we, what are the, what do the data tell us about what we can do to better support William rather than to say, oh, this is, this is how onboarding impacts engagement for our employees. Uh, and doing both of those things really well. Have, have the way that we've looked at people analytics uh, historically, has it been too um, uh, reflective and too, um, again, kind of where, where it, a lot of it came out of was business intelligence, right? A lot of BI products kind of came about and then we applied it towards humans and talent and employees, et cetera, people. And so a lot of it was dashboards, especially the beginning of it was dashboards, red, yellow, green, here's what's going on, Um, but reactive by and large, not proactive and definitely not, you know, uh, foreshadowing or or, or giving us an idea both insight into real time, but also giving us an idea of recommendations on what to do. So what's what's your take on kind of how people analytics have kind of come to market and why we, why some of this is the way it is. Yeah, it's a great question. I think part of it uh, is you always want to keep the reflective component Mm. because you do want to reflect on what you're doing and and derive those overall insights. So I don't think it's an either or around reflective or proactive. I think it's a both. And one thing I do think needs to be shifted, however, is the mindset. Is it analytics and data for inspection or is it data and analytics for learning? And what I mean by inspection versus learning is, is this a, a score that we're using to, to track people and measure people and uh, uh, hold people accountable? Not to say that I'm against accountability. I'm just saying that the accountability should be for the outcome and not for the outputs. Right? The outcome is that we want to have happy, engaged, hardworking employees. The outcome is that we want to have a place where f- people feel included and, and belong. The metric is just a tool for measuring that outcome. Right. So, so how can we use the metrics to learn rather than, than use them as the actual outcome that we're driving toward? You know, you don't want to incentivize people. You don't want to incentivize managers for their employee engagement score too much because that can lead to people doing things like, well, having a pizza party on the days that you do the employee engagement survey. Uh, <laughs> it's pretty, pretty innocuous. Or, or I've seen things as egregious as, hey, you better give me all fives or uh, we're gonna have to have a conversation about whether this is the right place for you to work. In which case, then you just completely um, eliminated the, the whole point of your program, right? So I, I think it's more about the mindset with which we apply to the data and whether we're thinking about it as, uh, as uh, less like scores on an exam or your final grade for a class and more like the speedometer on your car, right? It's information that allows you to adjust your behavior in order to, to help you accomplish your goal. So let's, let's keep the metaphor of the odometer or speedometer on your car. If we were, if we were building kind of the dashboard uh, mm-hmm. of the car for, for talent and people what would those things be? I love that question. Um, I, you know, I think you want to look at both the outcomes mm-hmm. 
and the drivers. And too often, organizations will over-index over on mm -hmm. one or the other. So the outcomes you're looking for are, are things like well-being, employee well-being, whether or not people intend to stay, uh, whether or not people are, are motivated in their job, whether they, they have pride in your organization. Um, but those aren't enough. You can't walk up to somebody and say, feel proud to work here. Although people try and do that stuff all the time. It doesn't actually feel like you belong, right? I think one of the, the, the funniest things is when uh, organizations have trouble with belongingness and they have these big banners that they put up everywhere that says you belong here, which is well intended. But if you already don't feel like you belong there and there's a huge banner telling you that you do, that's that might actually lead to... Um, people feeling less like they belong. So it's important to also have the driver inputs, right? So what are the drivers of belongingness? Well, here's a good one. In a real retail organization, we found that some managers were so busy that during some people's first day of work, they didn't actually sit down and have a meeting with them. They introduced themselves over a text message or an email. Now, intuitively, you might be able to say, okay, yeah, that's that's probably not going to be the best way to onboard somebody. But when you can use the reflective component to say, hey, this is going to lead to people leaving and not belonging and taking their time and talent somewhere else, that can help make the business case so that hiring managers know, hey, yeah, I get that you have the, the burning platform of whatever the, the fire you're putting out that day happens to be, but you're going to get a better return on your action for actually taking that time to meet with someone one-on-one -on -one versus shooting them a text message. Now, now that doesn't mean that the, the, the part where people go way off the, the rails on this is to, to start to mandate that managers do that. And they use the survey as a way to track that because then you'll just have people gaming the system. Uh, so, to, to, to go back to your initial question of what are the metrics, you, you want to you measure the things that people want to ultimately drive toward, and you want to help them prioritize and, and, and focus in on the specific behaviors that are going to yield the best bang for their, their time, the best bang for their buck, the best return on action uh, around the drivers that will, will help them meet those outcomes. So change is uh, both constant and difficult. Uh, and, and often, you know, I, I advise a, a, a bunch of technology startups and it's kind of a parlor trick, trick question, if you will. And I always ask uh, during the onboarding process, I always ask about their competitors. You know, who's your competitor? Who do you feel like you're competing against? And they'll list off, you know, competitor A, competitor B, usually it's another software company. I'm like, yeah, no, that's right. So <laughs> your competitors are actually the status quo. Mm -hmm. People doing it the exact same way that they did it yesterday. That's actually who you compete with. I mean, you can look at Naval Gaze and these other folks, but really it's, it's people just being lazy and doing it the same way. So with people analytics in particular, you know, especially the way that we've kind of come up to understand people analytics uh, as it is today, how do we change people's minds about how to, how to truly look at people analytics in the future? I, I, that's a, a great point and a great question. And you're right. Uh, uh, the status quo is everyone's biggest competitor. And unless you can build the case to show that what you're doing now is costing you money 
and, and costing you credibility, you're not going to be able to make the case to, to take the next step. So if you think about the status quo when it comes to this stuff, you know, it's usually something that's led by, by HR. And it's more often than not a survey driven program that measures things like employee engagement, maybe a couple of life cycle surveys. And the action taking is usually done at a company wide level and consists of leaders making sweeping process changes. And the whole point of the program is for leaders and HR folks to really have an understanding of the employee. And that all sounds fine and dandy, right? It doesn't sound like there's necessarily a problem with that status quo until you look at the the results that come along with that status quo, right? Because some of the results that happen when you have everything led by HR and it's seen as an employee engagement program is that people analytics then become seen as an HR thing rather than a business priority. When you, when you start to create a program that has the, the survey at the center, and, and when the survey becomes the focal point, rather than a, a tool to measure employee engagement or a tool to measure your culture or a tool to measure the health of your business through your people, people will start to game the system. Uh, and when you focus on action taking only at the leadership level, then that creates a delay in the action that gets taken because those organization-wide changes can take half a year to a full year to implement. And people are left wondering, why does it take a year to to implement action on a seemingly simple survey? Uh, And ultimately, uh, while gathering feedback for the purpose of understanding is nice, what really drives changes in your organization is taking action on that understanding. And if you fail to take action, then you're going to lose credibility as a people analytics function. And you're ultimately going to create poorer experiences for your workforce, which is the whole point of doing this stuff to begin with. So, so uh, it's several things I want to unpack there. One is, is the, the world of engagement as we've kind of seen it uh, kind of grow up in front of our eyes over the last 10 years, the employee satisfaction survey, the annual employee satisfaction survey that no one ever looked at the results. Uh, then we went to kind of a pulse survey. So we're going to do it more frequently. So we're now we're going to uh, ask people questions that we don't really care about their answers, and uh, but we'll do it more frequently. Um, and and so I've said, in fact, I've been on public saying engagement is not the end goal, that it's a speed bump uh, on the way to retention. Mm. And so I've gotten into trouble, actually, from some of the engagement companies. <laughs> they, didn't, they didn't like that. I'm like, yeah, you don't have a thing. It's, it's really a, a thing that's on the way to a thing. Um, and so I want to get your take on engagement, and then I want to get your take on, on retention as well. Yeah, I love that. So, I, I, you know, it's, it's interesting. So Qualtrics had a pivot recently um, with regard to our official uh, definition of engagement. And the official definition of engagement at Qualtrics, and most organizations still follow this, has, has a component related to retention or, or intent to stay, which is sort of a, a leading indicator of, of retention. Um, but I think it's really helpful to parse it out as its own outcome that you don't look at in lieu of engagement, but you look at it with engagement. Hmm. So, 
So think about it as a two by two, right? You have people that are engaged as, as, as defined by motivated and, and have pride in the organization. Uh, and some of those people are also intend to stay. And that's that, you know, if you th think about it as a two by two, those are the folks that are in the upper right-hand corner, uh, upper right-hand corner, right? They're, they're engaged and they intend to stay. That's what you really want. But you'll, and you have people in the upper or the lower left-hand corner, which are not engaged and they don't intend to stay. Well, that's kind of fine, actually, right? If you're not engaged, I'd prefer for you not to intend to stay. Uh, the tricky part is when you have people that intend to stay, but they're not engaged, right? That I'd rather you want to leave if you're not going to be engaged in your work. And oftentimes that's where you have things like golden handcuffs, where maybe you have someone that just can't get another job because they don't interview well uh, or, or whatever. You know, maybe you're the best, the best job in town and they're going to stick with you because there's no other option. Um, and then you have people that don't intend to stay. But they're going to be really motivated and say, you have the people that don't intend to stay, but they're going to be really motivated and say really good things about your organization and work really hard for the time that they're there. Uh, and those are the people that you really want, you want them to move from being motivated and engaged and get them to intend to stay somehow. I love that. And so the retention in terms of a people analytics perspective and data, and again, getting back to the, the measurables uh, for the business how do we, how should we be looking at retention? So I think it's first, you have to understand that it's messy. Mm. And, and that's not an oversimplification in any stretch of the imagination, because if you're thinking about it from an analytics perspective, there are so many variables you need to take into account, right? So if you, if you build a model that's just based on who stays and who leaves, that model is going to include people that were uh, not regrettable, that were regrettable churn. They're going to, it's going to include people who left because of family and personal reasons. It's going to include people who were preventable leavers and, and non-preventable leavers. So you have to be really specific about when you're measuring retention, who do you really want to know about? Who are the people that you really want to understand why and how they're leaving uh, and make sure that you're targeting that. Because if you don't think about that upfront, when you're building your model or you're thinking about this piece, you're going to have a, a lot of messiness in that data. So you have to know whether or not you can even track that to begin with. But I think a radical simplification of that goes back to arming frontline managers and teams and leaders with something that's not as exact, but is much more actionable. So going back to that reflective and proactive, I think there's a reflective uh, component to this, which is getting really specific about who, who do you want to know about and building those models and the, what we think of as the traditional people analytics piece, but not thinking about that as the end. Thinking about that as the beginning um, to a more important thing, which is how do you give people on the front line a simple way of saying, of all the things that you can do, according to this quick and dirty survey, what's the thing that's going to make the biggest impact on whether or not your people want to stay? Have a conversation with your people around this stuff and go try some stuff. Might not work, might work, 
But as long as you're including them in the conversation and you're proactively having that conversation and working on it together as a team, that's going to go further than anything because you're literally involving and engaging people at that point. And the more that you include your people in the process of solving problems and, and using more than, than just their labor, but their mind and talent, the, the better off you're going to be because they can't turn around and say, Hey, you should have done what I suggested <laughs> because you're actually going to help them be a part of that conversation around what they was, would suggest. I love that. So on the, in the dumb question, alert. so in the model of reflective and proactive, uh, reactive is, is somewhere in the middle or is it a part of both? That's a great question. You know, I think, I think reactive gets a, gets a bad rap. Right. Um, I, I think it is in the middle um, and it's not as bad so long as it's uh, maybe, maybe reactive is firefighting, whereas responsive is, is sort of the, the, right. the, positive, the positive version of reactive. Right? <laughs> if, if, if I order something from Amazon and for whatever reason, it gets sent to the wrong address, either because I clicked on the wrong thing or they forgot to update my address. If I send something into their customer service department and they, they take care of that, is that reactive? Yeah, but I, I prefer to think about that as responsive, right? right? So if I'm coming back from from an employee experience perspective, if you're coming back from disability leave or maternity leave, maternity leave and you can't log into the systems that you need to log into to do your job, yeah, I want someone that's going to be reactive slash responsive to that request. Um, I think the the reactive is... You do some analytics down the road and you find out that that's a problem. <laughs> so you create some onboarding program that tells everybody to be really nice to the people coming back from leave and doesn't actually solve the technology issues that people really care about. Right. I mean, you know, I can, if you ever talk to um, somebody coming back from parental leave <laughs> and ask them about the disconnect between all of the material that HR puts out around, you know, how it's supposed to be an easy transition you're, you're supposed to be eased back into your role and you can work part-time and your manager is going to have conversations with you about this and the reality of what they actually experience. And I think that's the difference between reflective and reactive because reactive just says, oh, this is an issue. Let's throw a bunch of soft skills training at the, at the problem and, and hope it goes away and say we did something about it. I love that. And, and I agree. I love the way that we've kind of thought about reflective and responsive and proactive. And again, all these things, they all have a place. They're all important. They're just used in different ways. And, and so uh, I love that you had mentioned impact and kind of biggest bang, biggest impact, et cetera. And you'd also mentioned kind of the actions. So, you know, last thing I kind of want to unpack with you is impact and actions and the relationship between impact and actions and what people analytics should be in the future. Yeah, I, I think it should be empowering people to take actions on the things that are likely to yield the most positive impact on the organization and to do so in ways that are not necessarily costly and don't have a huge risk associated with them. So you can have really sophisticated analytics that will tell you the specific dollar impact on a particular action. 
And um, those are really useful for big decisions um, that could cost the organization a lot of money. But there are also simpler analytics that are easy for frontline uh, managers and leaders to understand that can be directionally true, but it's okay because the risk associated with them uh, with taking those actions is extremely low. So I'll give you an example. I was working with a telecom company and they found, we found uh, with, with our help um, that frontline technicians that felt like people at that company were recognized for outstanding customer service were nine times more likely to resolve issues for their customers on the first try. Hmm. Now, the action that any manager could take as a result of that is to do a better job of recognizing employees. Right. And we found that that was not only something that had a big impact, but it was also something where only 10% of their population strongly agreed that people were recognized for great customer service. So there's a huge room for improvement there. Now, a more traditional way of looking at that would be to say, okay, what's the exact dollar amount um, uh, related to this factor, or this variable of recognition on customer problem resolution? And is that less than what it would cost for us to buy this recognition software program? Well, I'll tell you what, sometimes a handwritten note from your boss is more impactful than any kind of impersonal software recognition program, not to downplay or, or, or poo-poo software recognition programs. I think they're great. We use one at Qualtrics. That's amazing. But sometimes that handwritten note from your manager is just as impactful, if not more impactful, and there's zero cost associated with it. So you can encourage people to do that all day long and not have to worry about the negative repercussions. What you, the, only, the only time you'd have to worry about negative repercussions is if you made it a performance metric and started demanding that people do that because then- right. <laughs> <laughs> right? But if you, if you show the business connection, you encourage the behavior and you have people spend some time thinking about, you know, how can we do a better job with this? Sit down with your team and say, hey, how can we do a better job of recognizing each other? How can I, as your manager, do a better job of recognizing you? We found this has a huge impact. What, what do we want to do about it? So that, that's, that's, what, that's what the way forward looks like. It's, I it's love that. going back to, to, to bread and butter human behavior. Yeah, and it becomes more collaborative. That's what I love about it is it's not top down. It's not bottom up. It's, it's collaborative. You come together and go, hey, this is what the data is telling us. Let's take a look at it. And let's try some things. I love, I love you. you. You did that before where you're like, you know what? We're going to learn some things. We'll try some stuff. Some of it will work. Some of it will fail. And that's okay. Uh, I love that. I could talk to you forever. Kevin, thank you so much for your time and for yeah. coming on the podcast. My pleasure. Absolutely. And thanks for everyone listening to the Recruiting Daily Podcast. Until next time. You've been listening to the Recruiting Live Podcast by Recruiting Daily. Check out the latest industry podcasts, webinars, articles, and news at Recruiting.